Acts 2, 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. May God bless the reading of this word. Minister Jeff Wong will now continue our sermon series on the Church Unleashed by preaching on the topic, The Message is, con is Confirmed by Loving Community. Let's hear what the Lord has to share through Minister Jeff. Think back to when you first came to CBCGB. What led you to come? Or perhaps what caused you to stay? Was it the $2 lunch? Or probably the church's focus on strong biblical teaching or its history and involvement in missions. Or maybe it was the people, their welcoming spirit and intentionality. For myself, this is actually my second or third time back at this church. Each time I've come back, it's been for a different reason. I first came as a toddler around 1991, and what drew me to this church was what drew my parents. I think a family friend invited them, they filled out one of those connection cards and a CM elder and some sisters from the Chinese ministry visited our home in Peabody. Later on, I graduated from high school and left for a little while for a short period, but came back in the middle of college. It was ICF that led me to come back and stay. A community of college students who grew in our faith together, served together, shared meals together, lived life together. And now I'm back again, you know, after graduating from seminary, leaving, and now I'm back. If you're just joining us this week now, or haven't been around for a while, we, we just started a new sermon series called The Church Unleashed, and covering the first half of Acts. Now we saw in chapter one, the identity and the mission of the church, God's people, Jesus' witnesses. Last week, we saw the promised Holy Spirit come, and we quoted uh, another pastor early on in one of the sermons, the ordinary people of God, equipped with the Word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, dedicated to the Son of God, can accomplish the mission of God. And so Peter, empowered by the Spirit, preaches the gospel message, and the church continues to grow, continues to be unleashed for God's kingdom. This morning, our passage takes a look at the life of this early church. What do they do? What came out of it? Luke, as he is writing, he kind of oscillates between two things. He, de he describes the essential life of the church, and then he talks about the effect it had. So the, the main point, the big idea we're going to see in our passage today is this. The essential life of the church makes for an effective witness. The essential life of the church makes for an effective witness. So turn with me in your Bibles to Acts 2, 42 to 47. 
Right from the start, Luke gives us a picture of the church, God's people. And it's this, the essential life of the church is a life together. In these few verses, you really get a sense of a church that is joined together and united together in Christ. And that makes sense when we see how the story unfolds. The Holy Spirit is working. People are being saved. We said in the first sermon that Acts can be short for Acts of the Apostles, but it would be just as accurate to call it the Acts of Jesus and the Spirit through the Apostles. So Luke lists four main components of that life together. First, we gather around God's Word. The passage begins in verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the Apostles' teaching. But really, that's the Old Testament Scriptures, Jesus, his teachings, the gospel. Right before this, we see Peter's sermon at Pentecost, and he's citing uh, the Old Testament book of Joel to show what God is doing right now in their midst. He proclaims the gospel. He witnesses to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The early church are devoting themselves to God's word. God has spoken through his scriptures, and the church has chosen to listen to what he has to say. This emphasis on God's word was important then. It was important during the Reformation, and it is still just as important and relevant now. We gather around God's word as a church, a community, and we do this in many different ways. We have the public reading of Scripture. And we hear God's word to us, the same words that were said to Luke's audience 2,000 years ago. We not only read the word publicly, we preach the word faithfully. So if we are gathering around God's word, then myself, Minister Cola, Pastor Jeff, we are messengers, a mouthpiece for God's word, not our own word. And part of that also means we're not simply talking about preaching methods here. Preaching methods would be like focusing on our voice, our pitch, our pace, pause, and punch. Or what kind of illustrations to use since the human mind is a picture gallery. Or even deciding to preach textually, verse by verse, or, or topically. But if as the church we gather around God's word, then that means something for our philosophy of preaching here at Crossbridge and CBCGB. Expository preaching is what some homileticians call it. We want to expose what is already in the text, or to put simply, the the point of the text is the point of the sermon. Now, gathering around God's word uh, for us happens not just in the pulpit, but also in the pew. We have small groups and fellowships that meet regularly to do Bible study together. We have one-on-one discipleship where people meet up and read the Bible together. And I think one important implication undergirding uh, the early church devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, one implication undergirding our church gathering around God's word is that the Bible is relevant. Let me uh, repeat that one more time. The Bible is relevant. It's not just important, it is relevant. I mean, no, it was not written to us, but it was written for us. And that is why Paul can write in 1 Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable 
for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Look, I, I know a lot of the time the, the Bible does not feel relevant. But God's word is enduring. It does speak into our lives, into our world. The preacher every week stands between the two tasks of getting the Bible right and getting the Bible across. And I would go even further saying that as followers of Jesus, when we gather around God's word in small groups, in our own quiet time, we also stand between the two tasks of getting the Bible right and getting the Bible across. Here's another implication of us gathering around God's Word. Bible studies are not book clubs. Now, t- don't get me wrong, you know, both are great. We study on a God's Word going through books like 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, James, Jonah, Hosea. These are just some of the books of the Bible our home groups and fellowships have gone through recently. But we also do non-Bible studies, going through a book together, or watching one of the thousands of videos on Right Now Media. But at the end of the day, there's a difference. The latter are supplements, not substitutes for the former. God's Word, it is God's Word that is authoritative for our life. And this is important as biblical literacy increases. Last year, we had a sermon on staying in Scripture, and I referenced a bunch of data from the American Bible Bible Society's annual report, the State of the Bible 2019. Well, the 2020 report came out recently, and it was interesting because of the pandemic and how it affected biblical illiteracy. One of the insights they had is actually not really surprising. It's actually pretty obvious, but I'm going to mention it anyways. So their director of ministry intelligence, John Plake, said this, To increase scripture engagement, we must increase relational connections with one another through the church. The pandemic and now the survey have shown that when relational church engagement goes up, so does scripture engagement. But when it goes down, scripture engagement drops with it. This leads us to the second part of the essential life of the church. We gather around God's word but we also share our lives. They, that is the church, continually devoted themselves to fellowship. Specifically, that meant sharing lives and even selling their possessions for those in need. They had everything in common. All who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, See how Luke describes them. The people are identified as all who believed. That is their identity that unites them together and unites them towards uh, putting their belief into action. They sold their possessions. You know, we're not talking about not owning anything anymore, but they did all this voluntarily and for those in need. It's, it's kind of like a family, right? You still own whatever it is you own, but you're willing to give it up sacrificially for others because they're your family. And that's the church. Brothers and sisters in Christ, sons and daughters of God, the body of Christ, the family of God. And so we share our lives and we do so out of our identity and mission as the church. 
So what? Why does it matter? Back around 2013, there were several atheist churches that started popping up. What is an atheist church? Because it sounds kind of like an oxymoron. Basically, a gathering of non-believers who wanted everything the church offered, except for Jesus. So instead of singing Hillsong, they sang Queen. Instead of listening to a sermon, they listened to a speaker explain the origins of antimatter theory. And what they wanted was community fellowship. They desired the life together that was the essential life of the church, but they wanted a church without Christ. Fast forward a few years later, and another article comes out giving an update on a lot of these churches. And they say things like, secular churches rethink their sales pitch. Secular organizers started their own congregations, but to succeed, they need to do a better job of imitating religion. Now that's interesting to hear. The point was, as the article states, building adorable community of non-believers, it turns out, is more complicated than just excising God. One thing has become clear. The yearning for belonging is not in itself uh, enough to create a sense of home. In New York City, you had other things competing, like SoulCycle or CrossFit or brunch. It was not enough to meet for the sake of community itself. And I think we see that here in our passage. We share our lives, but what's really bringing us together is our belief in Christ and what God has done and what God is doing in his church and in this world. In Crossbridge, there's many ways that we share life together. When Yin and I were moving back to Boston, one thing that we constantly said to one another was, hey, if we're going to have a baby, Boston's probably the place we would have a lot of support because of this loving and caring Crossbridge community. And it's encouraging to see that people in our church have continued to live that out. For expecting parents, there's the whole distribution chain of baby clothes and items. And yeah, I mean, it can get overwhelming sometimes when there's so much to receive, but it's still a way for us to, to do life together, to share. And it's not just uh, baby stuff. I, I see worship team people bringing their uh, uh, instruments in and letting others borrow it. Uh, even this wireless appel mic that I'm using right now, I'm borrowing from Minister Cola, who graciously took time out of his very busy schedule to come and drop it off this morning. The essential life of the church is a life together. We gather around God's word. We share our lives and thirdly, we also share meals. Verses 46 to 47. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. The church continually devoted themselves to breaking bread together. They did so gladly and generously, and they did so publicly in the temple and privately in their homes. Now, there's some question about what breaking bread refers to. Is it, is it the Lord's Supper? Or is it just supper? Hospitality in the home. And there's a possibility it could actually be both. You know, in some cases, the, the believers regularly shared meals together, but it might also have been at these meals where they remember Christ's death on the cross and the establishment of the new covenant. 
How do we do this now? Well, on the one hand, we have the Meals for Moms ministry, a, a meal train for expecting parents, but also for others, like those who are sick or those who need some help. And inviting someone into your home might be difficult right now, but I, I've seen a lot of Crossbridge members do Zoom dinners, reaching out to people and breaking bread virtually. What about the breaking of bread in communion, though? While we've been meeting online, we actually haven't been taking the bread in the cup, although we have been remembering Christ in the new covenant. If you're subscribed to our announcements email, and if you look at the order of worship, you would have seen that we will aim to start doing online communion together in March. Our senior pastor, Pastor Pan, he, he wrote an explanation about this change, and I also recorded another announcement video for later that you guys are going to see, so I'm not going to get into all the details now. But one thing I do want to point out is that communion is about our relationship with God, but it's also about our relationship with each other. Coming together as the body of Christ, the church. Both are important. Now, we would want to be able to gather together physically to take communion together, but we can't. At least not right now, not immediately. And even when we begin to reopen, there's probably going to be a time where some will attend in person and others will attend online because of capacity issues. So I hope to encourage us when we start communion next month to hop on to our virtual lobby so that we can take it together instead of taking it by ourselves individually, looking at just a screen where it's my face or one of the other pastoral staff's faces and, and you can see us, but we can't see you and there's this disconnect. And hey, when we're in the lobby, feel free to unmute your video, maybe even unmute your mic after we take it together because communion's a joyous celebration. You know, we can receive it with glad and generous hearts together. Now, the last part of the church's life together is this. We pray together. The early church continually devoted themselves to prayer. They pray to God. They praise God. And we still do this today in our church. We have Sunday morning prayer every week at 9.30. Hey, if you show up late because it's hard to get up that early, it's, it's still okay. You know, we have the congregational prayer during our worship service. And yeah, it's the presider praying, but he or she is praying on behalf of the entire congregation. I think also some of the, the ladies, the women in Crossbridge have been praying regularly together. And Karis has a weekly Sunday night prayer time too. Now, these four parts that I've mentioned are all pretty straightforward. We know this passage pretty well, and I, I spent the better part of this message listing out example after example of opportunities that exist currently within our own church. But sometimes the challenge is not that there's no opportunities. Sometimes the challenge is that it's easy for us to start, but much harder for us to stay the course. Twice in this passage, Luke uses the same word to describe the church's persistent, continual devotion. So the LEB translation, Lexham English Bible, brings it out. Verse 42 and 46, And they were devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayers. And every day, devoting themselves to meeting with one person in the temple courts, 
It's the same word here, attending the temple, uh, devoting themselves. It carries the idea of persistence, perseverance, holding fast to, oftentimes actually despite difficulty and how hard it is. In our passage, there's a lot of imperfect verbs. And if you remember English grammar, imperfect verbs tend to imply ongoing action. So the life of the church in Acts 2 is a life that they did together uh, continually, persistently. They committed to it. They devoted themselves to it, to one another, to God. Now, what happens when our church doesn't live up to Acts 2, 42 to 47? You've heard me ask many times, so what? What difference does it make? Well, What if we feel there is no difference that is being made? What if we look at Acts 2 and we look at our church or another church or our fellowship or small group or, you know, and it's like, wow, these are two completely different pictures. I think one thing to keep in mind is that Luke is compressing the life of the church to six verses. So yes, these six verses are encouraging and describe Uh, the essential life of the early church, which is the life together, and a life we should strive to emulate together. But we also know from passages later on that the early church wasn't perfect either. They had their challenges. There was Ananias and Sapphira who were dishonest with money. Uh, Even later, we'll, we'll see that there's a whole group of widows who are being neglected. That matters because it helps us to remember that no church is perfect. There's the popular saying, if you find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. It also helps us to refocus our attention and our reliance on God. This passage, six verses, wonderful picture of the early church. But Luke also situates it right after Pentecost and the work of the Holy Spirit So the essential life of the church is a life together. Now, Luke draws a connection between that and what it does for non-believers, those outside of the community of Christ. That is, the essential life of the church makes for an effective witness. Verse 43 and 47, And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. And so we see three outcomes from the church's life together. Fear, favor, and faith. In verse 43, the translation is awe, but the literal word there is fear. It's awe-inspiring is what it is. You know, those outside of the church look at those inside of the church and it strikes them with awe and marvel. And a lot of it is because of the acts of Jesus and the Spirit. The apostles now, by the power of the Spirit, are doing the miracles that Jesus did during his ministry on earth. And we're going to see that next week, that the gospel message is not just confirmed by a loving community in chapter 2, but also by a mighty miracle in chapter 3. But what about today? Should we expect the same sort of all-like fear to strike our non-Christian friends and family members? Uh, Probably. 
You know, if wonders and signs by the Holy Spirit were being done in our midst. But there are also other ways that the Holy Spirit works that can still bring awe to those who do not know Christ. The presence of God is seen and shown through repentance, through transformed lives. These are all miracles. The mighty work of God when we repent, when our lives are changed. Crossbridge has five core values. Now, two of those are transformational and missional. God forgives our sin through the atoning death of Jesus and regenerates us through his indwelling spirit. Therefore, we live as redeemed and transformed, turning from sin and pursuing holiness. Christ commissions us to be his ambassadors in the world. Therefore, we participate in his mission through spreading the gospel and helping those in need. The essential life of the church makes for an effective witness. It brings an awe-inspiring fear. It also brings favor. In our passage, when the, churches, uh, when the church shared their lives together, having been transformed by the Spirit, having been centered on Christ, this has a positive effect on those who are seeing it happen. The early church was having favor with all the people believers and non-believers. What it's saying is that the non-believers respected the church. And that's amazing to hear, especially given today. Might we also live out our relationship with God in our relationships with one another in such a way that we would win their respect, but even ultimately win them to Christ? Now, this doesn't mean that we are ultimately seeking their approval. The the church must not confuse being accessible to the world with being approved by the world. But at the end of the day, it is God who we desire to enter into his joy, his joy, and to hear his words, well done, good and faithful servant. And it would be because we as a church have been accomplishing our mission, witnessing to Jesus. The third outcome is faith. And the passage ends with a summary statement. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What effect does the essential life of the church have? It it furthers the mission of the church through effective witness and God-given growth. The essential life of of the church makes for an effective witness. Let's pray. God, we give thanks to you working in us as your church, your people. We pray that as we continue to be the church, Lord, you would help us, aid us in that, that we might conduct, share, do our lives together in a way that would really point to you and that others, those who do not know you, would see you clearly. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.